You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. Welcome no, we to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 65. I'm your host, Sarah Head, with my co-host today, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. And today we're discussing the release of Ken's new book, Ancient America, 50 Archaeological Sites to See for Yourself. Ken gives us some behind-the-scenes insights into his writing process and the inspiration for this book. He also gives us a special gift for our listeners. Get ready to think critically. Okay, well, today we are going to talk about uh, Ken, if you didn't know, writes a lot of books because, like, he's an academic and he has to, I think. I'm not sure. I don't know. He's got nothing else to do. It's it's part of my work release program with the penitentiary. I have to write books. But if our listeners remember all the way back to episode 26, which I believe was, like, the middle of last year... Ken mentioned that he had gone on vacation, but really it was a work thing. And... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we, we don't call it vacation when the IRS is listening in on this podcast. <laughs> but well, you were you research. were actually doing research for your book yes. that was coming out, which was called what, Ken? Well, now, it, in fact, its title is Ancient America, 50 Archaeological Sites to See for Yourself. And I know people are listening to this podcast now and are thinking that, oh, my God, Fader is shamelessly flogging his book on this podcast. That's not true. I am not shamelessly flogging. I'm very much ashamed, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, um, shame, it's, it's shameful flogging. It's shameful flogging. <laughs> yes, there you go. There you go. Um, and yeah, so back back in episode 26, I talked a little bit about you know what how I started this whole project and why I started the project, and we gave a couple of, of examples. And um, and now it's it's a book. Um, it's kind of amazing when I think about what the actual history of this idea was. And in hindsight, I started thinking about this book long before I it was consciously an idea of mine. And if I think about it, it's when I was an undergraduate, actually, at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, now Stony Brook University, <clears throat> which, by the way, by sheer coincidence, my younger son is now a graduate student there in, believe it or not, the anthropology department. Nice. He's, in the primat- he's in the primatology program. Oh, how fun. Which is, which, is a, which is a big thing at Stony Brook. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a major program, so, which, is re- which is great. That's my son, Jacob, doing great there. And um, so anyway, I was an undergraduate there, and kind of my freshman year taking a hodgepodge of classes and I took a North American archaeology class with Phil Weigand. I don't know if you, oh. if you were familiar with him, Jeb. Yeah, he's a Mesoamericanist. Yeah, he Washington. works in West, he's one of the big names in West Mexico. Right. Yeah, he passed away oh, a year or so ago. Ah, I did uh, not know that. Yeah, and when I was an undergrad, his project, he was, he was for decades clamoring through caves in the American Southwest looking for turquoise sources mm-hmm. and then taking uh, actual turquoise artifacts from West Mexican sites and getting permission to take samples and running them through a neutron activation analysis reactor and, uh, on um, um, Brookhaven Labs in, on Long Island with physicist Garmin Harbottle and, and actually able to trace, I guess there's not 
a lot or there are very few or no turquoise sources in West Mexico. Or, so or, in, or in Mesoamerica generally. Is yeah. That right? So they're getting their turquoise from someplace and Phil was able, I think, kind of remarkably to make these these connections based on the, the, the trace element signatures and the artifacts with caves in New Mexico and Southern California and um, Nevada. And that was, so that was remarkable. Phil's a remarkable guy. And he taught the North American archaeology class. And I took the class. And the thing that impressed me the most about that course was his, the mound builders. I had never, grown up in New York, I had never heard of Cahokia or the mounds of Ohio. This was completely new to me. And I, in fact, my term paper that semester was on Cahokia. Yeah. Um, And it it hasn't changed. It's one of the things I ask my students is how many of you know there was a great city in the middle of the United States a thousand years ago and like no hands go up. It's a it's and that it's it's kind of tragic. And fast forward to 1976. This is where I will pause and allow um, Sarah to point out that this is before she was born. I, okay. I was gonna, I was gonna let that one slide. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, well, it's not, you, it's not true for me. Because <laughs> well, well, like, like, I'm old. like, I'm old. So anyway, so it was, it was um, the Society for American Archaeology. The, the meetings that, in fact, are coming up at the end of March in Vancouver. And Jeb, uh, Jeb is. Uh, are you the co-organizer of this? Yes, uh, David Anderson and I again. Uh, Archaeology and alternative religious movements, and this is in essence sort of a sequel to the one we did. You guys just published five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So and that resulted in the the, the book. And we'll book. talk. We'll talk more about what's happening with that, but there is a plan. Oh, good, good, cool. good, good, good. So, so anyway, so the, the SAAs, which is the professional organization of archaeologists in the United States and North America. Um, they meet every year, and in '76, the meeting was held in St. Louis, and I was a grad student in 1976, and I knew that Cahokia was a short ride from the venue in St. Louis. Um, so I was there, and, and there was some downtime, and I probably was unaware of the fact that the the society had organized a a group trip to Cahokia. Yeah. So I figured I would do it myself. And I went downstairs and talked to the gentleman behind the counter. Now, understand, this is a major hotel that caters to tourists. Cahokia, one of the most significant archaeological sites in all of North America, and in fact, arguably the world, is 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away, other side of the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. So I asked the gentleman behind the counter, um, how, how do I get to Cahokia? Where is there public transportation? Did he say and practice, practice, practice? No, he did not. He had this blank look on his face and said, Cahokia, I, I don't know where that is. Oh, and I then, to clarify it, I said, you know, Cahokia, the big Indian site. He leaned over, looked bemused and said, oh, sir, there haven't been any Indians around here for years. Jeez. Now, I kind of wondered if he thought that me as this Easterner um, with clearly a northeastern accent, if I thought that at the you know the margins of St. Louis, just beyond that, there were teepees and Indians hunting buffalo, and I said, no, no, sir, sir, this is it's a large archaeological site, big mounds. He had no idea what I was talking about. It wasn't just that he didn't know how to get there; he didn't know what it was. That's and this so was weird. not this was common. I went from person to person in the hotel, hotel staff. Does anybody know? Is anybody familiar with? Nothing. I ended up walking to the bus station and it was a bus driver who said, oh, yeah, I, I go through a park and there are these large mass. Is, is that what you're talking about? So even the guy who was driving right through the place yeah. had no idea what it was. 
I managed to get the the, the ride. I got the ride there because I was pretty nice. So I mean, it's, it's kind of astonishing. If just about anywhere else in the world, if you were to take a, a college age student, somebody, an educated person, say if you're in London, uh, anywhere in the UK, and ask them about Stonehenge, of course they know what Stonehenge is. They may even have visited Stonehenge. If you were to, to uh, talk to a kid in Cairo or anywhere in Egypt and say, do you, have you heard of the Sphinx? Do you know what the pyramids are? And of course they do. Um, they may, in fact, have, have visited it, uh, visited the, 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 the pyramids or the Sphinx. Now, we're talking about a major metropolitan area in the United States where 20 minutes away, maybe tops 20 minutes away, there is one of the most significant archaeological sites, not just in North America, but in the world, and they've never even heard of the place. Now, when I say that about Cahokia, that's not hyperbole. Um, the UNESCO, United Nations Organization, has a list, the World Heritage List, and there are, it's 1,052 places worldwide on this list. It's an honor roll. It's kind of the equivalent of, in America, we have the national, in the U.S., we have the National Register of Historic Places, places right. that are important, significant. The World Heritage List is like that, it's it's bigger, it's the, it's the world, and it's also um, uh, geological sites or famous historical locations, but also archaeological sites. There are 22 or 23 World Heritage List sites in the U.S. Four of those sites are archaeological sites. Chaco Canyon, mm -hmm. Mesa Verde, which we talked about uh -huh. in um, episode 26. Both of those are in my 50 sites. Poverty Point, a less well-known site, but it's on the World Heritage List. It's in Louisiana. I also love Poverty Point. And Cahokia. So the worldwide, Cahokia is recognized as one of the most significant places in the world. People right outside of St. Louis, people in St. Louis right outside, of, they don't even know that it exists. And Jeb, you were saying you find the same thing, mound sites where your college students have never heard of Cahokia. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Yeah, my, my I, I, you said that I asked my students, you know, have you ever heard of it? Now you may all not like what I'm about to what I'm about to say. I do, but I do this. I have actually started using the rhetoric of cover up. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's actually entirely inappropriate. As that, in, people are covering up the fact that we have these <coughs> natural sites. Um, that they have. I mean, that in essence is what the mound builder myth was. True. And there are people who still basically kind of promote modern versions of the mound builder myth that other people other than indigenous Americans made these things. That is true. Um, right. So as much as what you all call the fringe is constantly talking about uh, cover-ups and blah, blah, blah on the part of the mainstream, hmm. uh, actually, if you had to point to an archaeological cover-up in the United States, that's the closest you would get is this this sort of notion of you know, and, and I teach I teach it on multiple levels. In my one four five, I talk about that. Just that we read Tim Pocketat's book, mm -hmm. uh, Cahokia and the Ancient Mississippians, which he very purposely named that way. He pretty much says the same thing, where he's like, "There's the mound builder myth," and then lo and behold, uh, when these things that were all considered super important were said to be made by indigenous Americans, all of a sudden they became not very interesting to the rest of America in many ways. That's true. So, yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. There's one World Heritage Site in, in El Salvador that's uh, Hoya de Seren, uh, uh -huh. the, volcanic, the volcanically destroyed uh, village. But um, how many... So you've got four on there, Ken, and all, all of those are in, in ancient America, 50 archaeological right. sites to see yep. for yourself. Um, let me ask you, and this may be an impertinent question. Not um, from since you. 
Coming, coming no. from Jeb. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> uh, you've been to and you describe these 50 archaeological sites. And these four are on the World Heritage List, which is a very cool list. But could you see, like, the clear delineation, like, I see why this is on the UNESCO list, and I see why these other ones in the United States are not? No, in, in fact, the, the answer to the first part of your question, yes, I see why those sites are on the World Heritage List. But the the... the the opposite question there of what well, do I see why these others are not? No, I don't. In fact, several years ago, Brad Lepper at the they're not the Ohio Historical Society, the Ohio History Connection. Ohio History right? Connection, and he's been right. on the show before. Right, Brad's a great guy, and Brad was spearheading um, the uh, the the application process for the World Heritage List of a number of sites in Ohio, and yeah. I think uh, the. Um, Hopewell, the, the Mount Chilicothe. City, yeah, yeah. yeah Mount City, uh, Serpent Mound, and it may have been Sunwatch Village as well, where these were, they were attempting to get these listed. And I, it, I remember writing a letter um, in support. I don't know what what the status of that is now. It hasn't. It's been several years ago, and they have. I've heard of. I've heard of that. I don't think it's on the list. Do you know if they were trying to add them as a unit? For example, like the Capactian, the uh, the backbone of the Inca Empire, the road system is now a World Heritage site, even though right. it's a large system. But they I, they do that sometimes. They'll make multiple sites. Right. Right. You know, I don't remember. My recollection is that these were separate. Uh, that there were separate uh, nominations, I but I, I could be wrong about that. I it's it's when I look, when I've, I've got a, a number of books here that that are effectively encyclopedias of the world of the World Heritage list right. sites, and I think that there are a lot more from an archaeology perspective. There are a lot more, and some of the ones that are ones that are that are on um, in my fifty sites that absolutely qualify for inclusion. Um, uh, the, the one Horseshoe Canyon. I mean, Mesa Verde is on the list. We talked about that in episode 26. Horseshoe Canyon has some of the most spectacular rock art anywhere in the world. There's no reason for it not to be on that list. On occasion, Jeb, and I know that that you you are a, maybe a little more conspiratorially minded than am I. <laughs> but that's why we but like him. I actually have heard blowback from people who have said, "We hate the United Nations. We hate UNESCO." They're terrible. We don't want them taking over these American sites. And you can't, you cannot convince them that it's a list. They, they don't like the UN troops don't come in and occupy the sites, but you can't convince some people otherwise. Let's, so, let's remember that elected officials in Texas last year at least gave some credence to the idea that old Walmarts were going to be used uh, in Operation Jade Helm as concentration camps. So getting horrified at the bo the bottom of the bin i right. can i've only got we only have so much energy yes so but but certainly there are other sites that deserve inclusion and i think well, that was the, the thing i would say on that just before we get off the topic on that is i do detect occasionally that's i suspect some sites sometimes get happening because of modern politics like some sites make certain and i don't want to name names but i can think of some that got designated 
in a larger context of larger geopolitics. That does, I think, happen. And the thing is, I don't think it's that they're not deserving. I think it's more like there are many deserving sites, and right. this one gets attention for other reasons, even though it's very deserving. Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to Fair rush right. something through, um, protection reasons and that kind of stuff. Yeah. For just, yeah. you know, becoming, becoming a, a World Heritage Site it doesn't like stop things from happening no, to it, right. but it brings it to a the forefront of the yeah. global community's perception, and so it, it does right. kind of give it prope- protection in that. Yeah, but it it's obviously all, doesn't stop destruction because I mean we lost the Buddha, right. we've lost a lot of stuff in in the, the well. What, ISIS what it does, what it does, what it does do is it does sort of obligate the local authorities and government to if they want to keep that designation to not neglect these places. Exactly. It does give it protection in that, but it doesn't, I don't, as far as I understand, they don't get anything for it other than just a designation as as, being a world site. As Ken said, it's just a list. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it is, it's, it's enervating that something as really essentially innocuous and positive as being listed, say on the national register or in this world heritage list elicits this negative reaction from people who think that there's some, there's subterfuge. There's Should, some hidden agenda. We could always really isn't. Well, you mentioned agendas. We could always talk about Agenda 21, where people believe things like bike paths are part of a genocidal plan. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I, so when we go off air, you have to explain this one to me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the point here is that that it, being shocked as a graduate student, and then having Jeb's experience in class, I, I do this all the time. I say, okay, what? When you hear Native Native American Native American history, what they ask my students, what immediately comes to mind, and what comes to mind even in the 21st century, even among students who I, I consider to be highly educated, there the, the things that come to mind are teepees and Indians and buffaloes, and certainly it's not cliff dwellings, it's not cities, it's not great leaders of mound societies. Those those things are not the things that people think about. And I thought, well. Is it, isn't it my responsibility as an educator that this is this is something lacking? I, I don't know about you, Jeb, but I, and, and Sarah, when you teach as well, I ask students, what did you learn in social studies or in your high yeah, school history? Absolutely do. When, absolutely when do. does history start? And even today, in highly educated kids, kids who went to great high schools, history starts in New England when the pilgrims arrive. Yeah. It doesn't even start with Columbus. Oh, he was some, some, you know, he's an Italian guy for Spain. We don't care about that. Uh, you ask students, uh, you ask students in New England, what's the earliest white settlement in America? They all will tell you it's Plymouth. Wow. And then when you say, well, no, actually, it's not. Just a little side story. And I love this because I think it's it's this wonderful self-awareness here in Connecticut. Uh, these these communities, these towns are extremely proud of their 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 history of their antiquity so you you cannot drive into any town here in connecticut without a big sign indicating the founding date you know 1727 founded 1683 um bluff utah uh, this little town in southeastern utah and we talked about it mentioned it i think uh in a previous podcast we talked about the bears ears national monument bluff yes. is right there uh, at the southern margin of it when you drive into bluff there's a big sign that says founded ad 650. <laughs> 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 and i think that's incredibly clever um and it's 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 actually not on the navajo reservation it's north of the navajo reservation but these folks are self-aware 
Good. Um, you ask them about that, and they say, well, yeah, there's there's an Indian settlement here. It dates back at least to AD 650, so that's when our community was founded. Good. Um, but that, and that's great, but no, I don't think, uh, I, I, I don't know. In, in, I'm going to ask you, Jeb, I don't know if this is a fair question. In the United States, one of the problems that I have perceived in trying to get these 50 sites out there is that people see a disconnect between our white colonial history and Indians. Indians are part of natural history. You go to natural history museums, that's where the Indians are. So there's that, that's something else. We're not really interested in that. We're not, we don't want to highlight that because that's somebody else's history. In, oh, in, in Mesoamerica. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying in Mesoamerica, there are a lot of folks who are, you know, Spanish, who are, they're mestizos, or there's lots of intermarriage. Do, does the, the average Spaniard who's, that, who's, whose family roots go back to Spain, to Madrid, do they perceive the Aztecs as being part of their history? Do they that perceive becomes... the Maya? I don't, I don't want to get it off track, and I, I'll, I'll answer the question, but, I mean, that could literally be its own show. Sure. Um, but first off, it depends where you are. So in okay. Mexico, there is very much the idea of the Aztecs and specifically the Aztecs, even though, for our listeners, the Aztec Empire was founded in the 1430s. Right. It was less than 100 years old. <laughs> when right. the Spaniards arrive. There are thousands of years of urban civilization in the same area, most famously Teotihuacan, but uh, in, the, in the 18th, but primarily the 19th and early 20th centuries, the Aztecs became sort of the, how do we separate ourselves from Spain? Okay. I know Aztecs, because they're at the edge. In previous shows, I've talked about this notion of proto-history and the, and the mythic qualities of proto-history, at the right. edge of history. Because the Aztecs are there, they have very much gotten that. So in Mexico, absolutely. Where at, but a lot of it involves stereotypes. Sure. A lot of it, it gets very complicated. You get elsewhere, it's more like here, where there's this notion right. that they're indigenous people, and they're all gone. And yeah, there are there, there are anymore. there are places like that where it's like oh there were indigenous people here and you will see many of the same kind of fantasies and it'll be it's not the same as here but it's different in other ways and then you get places like say Guatemala where it's still a huge indigenous population but it is one that has had real uh, oppression in the modern era I mean there was. Uh, uh, huge uh, losses that have been termed genocide by many outside uh, observers uh, in, the, in the Guatemalan Civil War, especially in the 1980s, with hundreds of uh, Maya villages being in towns being wiped off the map during the Guatemalan right. Civil War. They were targeted as basically thought by, uh, by the government and, and related forces to be allied with communist rebels. And there were all sorts of horrible things that happened. And these still have ramifications today, many of which seem to be sort of a continuation of the colonial era in many senses. Um, there, it's undeniable. But then there's this sort of, it's the same thing you see with the Greeks and Romans, where it's like, you know, uh, British folk or Americans or whatever or Germans would go to Greek and Greece and they're like, oh, there's all these Greeks people here, but they're not really the same people that built the cool things. Those are different Greeks. And they don't necessarily mean literally, but they kind of do. So you have some of the same disjuncts. Colonialism is still in effect. I would say it is nowhere near as absolute 
as it is in the United States, though. Yeah, which is, and one of the things that I, that I in, in my teaching, and certainly in the 50 Sites book, is to get people to understand that this is all, if this is all American heritage. Now, obviously, Native Americans, the folks who are the actual descendants of the folks who built places like Mesa Verde or Cahokia or, or um, Miamisburg Mound or Etowah, obviously their connection is more intimate, but we are, the, the example I give is, hey, look, I, uh, as, as, a, uh, as an American born in the United States, have visited Revolutionary War sites and consider that to be part of my history. But the truth is, during the Revolutionary War, my ancestors were in Poland getting shot at by Cossacks. Okay. So really, and for true, that's not my history. But as a person born here, this is my country. This is my, this is, it's all part of all of our heritage. The funny thing there, of course, is that when you, when you go to places like Mesa Verde, especially, um, you will hear every language on the surface of the planet. You, you, I've, been to, I've been to Mesa Verde where I thought, you know, I'm hearing more people who clearly are Japanese, Germans, oh, yeah. Italians, and French than I'm hearing folks who are Usanians, who are Americans. Yes. Um, and that's that's another interesting thing. But but it's, frust it's frustrating as a person who does archaeology here, who is an educator here, that there is this either just passive lack of knowledge, ignorance, or an active resistance to considering these sites as being worthy of visiting because, well, that's somebody else's history. That's not part of my history. And that, and I think that that's, that's a, that is a, a, a barrier that I try to overcome both in my teaching and in my discussion in the 50 Sites book. You know, I so think ahead. that's... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think that's a really good um, topic that we should explore in a full episode, that whole concept sure. of not my history, even though it's clearly yeah. your history. Um, but right. let's go to break real quick. And when we sure. come back, let's start talking about some of the sites that you went to and visited. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm here with Michael Ashley from Codify.com, and we're going to talk about the new photo boards that they're developing and why we need them. Michael, what's important about a photo board, and why does someone have to really think about what they use in the field or in the lab? You know, Chris, it's interesting when we look at field photos, the way we've been taking them hasn't changed much in the past hundred years. Some people may use the back of a clipboard or paper sheet to provide a clean background, or go to the trouble of using those photo boards with all the letters, but we really need our photos to do a lot. We need a new kind of photo board that can help us achieve consistent color, provide scale, and help us measure things, especially if we're not collecting artifacts and we have just one chance to get it right. Developing a photo board that can do all these things, especially designed for digital photography, well, this is a challenge. It needs to be indestructible, weatherproof, fade-proof, lightweight, portable, and affordable. So what is Codify developing? And as it says on the website, what makes it magic? All right, in our lab and field testing, we started with a 10 by 12 inch board, big enough for most artifacts we encounter in the field, but not so big it would be a pain to carry. The board is magic because it has special markers on it that will produce a measurable model in 3D just from taking a few photos, and the object will be magically color balanced by using the board as a background. There's space on the bottom so we can superimpose a digital caption and company logo, plus a space for either physical barcodes or virtual ones to dramatically improve field and lab accessioning of artifacts and samples. So we've already received a lot of suggestions for other boards. So we're releasing a four by six inch pocket board in both Imperial and metric. And we're psyched about our directional arrow, which has both metric and standard scales on it and will white balance your photos. It's really cool. 
So when can people expect to get one of these photo boards and where can they get them? All right, well, we're excited to say that we have a limited run in production right now, shipping just in time for holiday gifts. We want to get these in your hands and look forward to your feedback. Chris, what kind of deal can APN listeners get? All right, well, just head over to www.codify.com forward slash APN for a discount code that's valid only on that day and for other ongoing discount codes just for you. That's codifi.com forward slash APN. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Hey everyone, and we are back. And Jeb, you had a thought to... I did. So what I think what you need to do, Ken, given what we've been talking about, I think you would maybe sell some more copies if you talked about this as forbidden 50 archaeological sites oh. that they're trying to hide from you. Hey, listen. I, I'm the, just saying. Yeah, listen, man. The, the very first... I'm not going to read it, but the very first paragraph of the book is that there's a hidden history. Oh, but then yeah, I, there we go. See, we go. I point out, but I point out that it's not hidden by like the Rotary Club or the Smithsonian <laughs> or professional archaeologists. It's hidden. It's a result of of this amnesia. It's it's we, we don't know about this because nobody's talking about it. You and know, go on. I think like the both of you have a really good idea there, though. I think we should approach the Smithsonian with the concept of suppressing these sites. Because then it will get people fired up to go visit them because the Smithsonian will actually be involved in a conspiracy. You know? It, conceivably, conceivably. That little reverse work. psychology there. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, you don't want to know about these Play things. the We're hand you've been dealt. I'm just saying, they're already being accused of it. If maybe right. that will bring people to the sites, maybe we well, should be doing uh, that. On a, on a more positive approach, <laughs> and I, I mentioned this uh, back in, in episode 26, and I get a lot of mileage out of this story but it's kind of if 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 the, this guy not knowing where the hell Cahokia was and he lived 10 minutes away if that was kind of an ultimate um uh, inspiration for the book the proximate inspiration the closer in inspiration was this guy who who wrote me in 2008 that he had been in my class four years before and that you know he'd been an intra-archaeological lesson he wasn't a good student but but that I had kind of inspired him in his life to actually go and visit archaeological sites. Because even back then, I was telling students, these things I'm talking about, you can actually see, you can actually be in the presence of these sites where we have discovered the oldest settlements in, in the New World, we can, where we have the oldest agriculture or whatever. And so this he's telling me in 2008 that, that he had just returned from a trip to Arizona with now he's got a wife and he's got a couple of kids and they're driving up the I-17 and they see the sign from Montezuma Castle, which is a site I've long shown pictures of, and how he says to his wife, hey, you know my crazy archaeology prof, he used to show pictures of this. Do you mind if we get off the highway and just check it out? And he's telling me this in the letter that his wife said, yeah, sure. And he's got a four-year-old little girl and a one-year-old at this point, and they walk around, and the rest of the letter is this, I, I can't believe that I didn't know that this existed. This is an amazing thing. Thank you for inspiring, for opening up my eyes to this. And of course, at the very end, this is when he says, and my four-year-old now, she said, Daddy, I want to I want to grow up and be an archaeologist. Aww. Oh, my God. I've, I've had this multi-generational impact. And that was the thing that, that was the, the actual um thought bubble immediately oh my god i should be doing this on a broader scale i've got 90 kids in the class and i do my best to inspire them to actually engage in the archaeological record by visiting sites and hoping well if they're they're now citizens and they see the importance and value 
um, of these places that when they vote for Congress people or when they vote for their senators, they're gonna they might consider um, voting for somebody much more strongly consider voting for somebody who says I support historic preservation. I would like to see these places preserved so our children and our grandchildren can see them and learn from them. And so that that was actually when I sat down and said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book. Um, interestingly, though, initially a lot of folks told me that. Well, you know, this is going to be trade book, so you you need an agent, and you uh, you wouldn't be surprised at the the absolutely negative reaction from literary agents about a real deal book about American archaeology, again and again and again. It was well, but th that's we want mysteries. Yeah. No, we want we want we want mysterious stories. We want we don't nobody wants debunking. I literally got one agent who said. I love the the you know I sent him three or four um, of the entries in the book. I love it. It's wonderful, well written, really interesting. But um, but we're going to pass on that because you know this is certainly not a sure thing. And in publishing these days, we only want to go for sure things. And of course, then I looked at his agency, what books, published books they had that they represented, and they were all about you know better sex through yoga <laughs> and diet books. And yeah, maybe I can convince people, well, when, when we talk about the um, Serpent Mound, we're, we won't talk about it today, but we're going to talk about it another time. There actually, for a while, was a New Age feeling that you'd have, that sex was, your, your orgasms were much better if you did it on top of Serpent Mound. Oh, man. Uh, that's an there's, old... a, there's a book, man. Well, there that's an old <laughs> idea. I mean, when I went to Avebury in, in England, they talked about how many people uh, would go there be, uh, because there would be a, it could magically increase your chance of conception and all oh, of that, which is an idea I've also heard for uh, the Cairo Museum and Cairo a number Museum. of other. Yep, there is. A, it's it's a it's not an unusual idea at all that people uh, have. Well, uh, can, maybe we're missing we're missing a good well, here. There you uh, go. See, the archaeology of sex has been done, but you could do like archaeological mm -hmm. sex positions or something i don't know <laughs> i don't know yeah I, I actually did have a question ken i hadn't thought sure. of um you you now you've written a lot of books that do fall into that that quote-unquote debunking category and obviously frauds myths and mysteries is the big one right. um but is my understanding is that that's not the primary kind of focus here but is um, okay. And the, the deal here is we got 50 sites, and there are a fair number of them that the fringe people um, have glommed yeah. onto and have yeah. their own unique interpretation. Um, I, you and I, Jeb, I think have talked about this before that when I was in New Mexico in 2014, International UFO Museum oh, yes. in Roswell. <laughs> which oh, yes. is, I mean, it's a kind of a charming place. Um, the story that, eh. that I get mileage out of was eh. when I arrived there. Um, they were, it wasn't very busy, but the woman who was selling tickets seemed distracted and she kept looking outside and she apologized. She said, we're expecting a large bus and they're about 20 minutes late, so we're concerned. And so naturally I said, oh my God, you don't think they've been abducted? And, <laughs> oh. and, and she just looked at me and she said, no, I, they're probably just stuck in traffic. And then of course I responded, yeah, that's what they want you to believe. She, she got the joke. But yeah. the, I and, she, and she's like, I have to live here. I yeah, but for a minute there, <laughs> she thought you were real. <laughs> but but 
I did not expect to see any archaeology there. And I, I don't know if we've discussed this before, but when I, as soon as I got there, there was this life-size wooden replica yep. of the Palenque sarcophagus lid. Right. Huh. Well, there's archaeologists in the narrative. I mean, it's, it's actually quite woven woven in. Uh, right, so that, yeah. that's not surprising. Yeah. Well, the I thing I find interesting is you mentioned you mentioned Montezuma's castle. Uh, Mazuma Castle in Arizona, which of course right. has no relationship to right. the Mexica or, or Aztec. But you've got like a bunch. You've got Toltec uh, mounds, Toltec in, mounds. In, in, Scott, in Scott, Arkansas. You've got uh, Ascalon uh, in in Wisconsin and Aztec in New it's Mexico. Quite a few of those, they get their names from ideas in the 19th century. Um, right. Basically, John Lloyd Stevens and Frederick Catherwood, when they published about the Maya, and you were asking about the, the Mexico stuff, that was the hotness in the 19th right. century. And these were like, oh, it's made of stone. These local people who I don't like couldn't have done it. So it must have been Aztec. And you'll hear right. the word Toltec a lot in um, – uh, new age circles, but that's usually tying back to this weird 19th century idea of white Toltecs. Right, and the fact that thing. right, and if, you know, a pyramid in Arkansas could not have been built by local natives. That's the idea. Right, it, even though this is a pyramid of earth, it's not a pyramid of stone. So therefore, it must be some mysterious, uh, strange, mystical group from somewhere else. And you, oh yeah, so the the attempt was to to let's 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 do everything we can to disassociate these sites with our local native people because they're primitive and backwards and they could not have possibly accomplished this so there's that but the, the thing i was going to talk about mention about roswell is that there's a panel there there's an exhibit there of oh, photographs no. of rock art oh, of course and of pictographs and these are the barrier canyon rock art has is typically this is the, the 2,000-year-old stuff, googly eyes, long, elongated bodies, and sometimes headgear, uh, headdresses that look like antenna or antlers or whatever. And so right there in the Roswell Museum are photographs of sites, uh, two, one site that's actually in the book, Sago Canyon, which is amazing rock art from four different time periods. And sure enough, there is a photograph of the, the primary barrier canyon style panel at sago canyon and these guys are all well clearly they're extraterrestrials wearing spacesuits, and it's it, it's kind of shocking but there it is right there you are confronted by that so in the book i say hey look this is not these are here's what you need to do to under here's how you need to to view rock art rock, view it the way you view art one of the things i talk about in the book is if, if you're going to look at rock art at these sites, and there are a bunch of rock art sites uh, in my 50 site uh, listing, if you're gonna look at them literally, if you insist on viewing them as all representational and not abstract or hallucinatory or mystical, if you're gonna look, view them clearly as, you know, these, these are things that they actually saw, there's this wonderful little uh, petroglyph in, um, in, uh, in Bluff of a bunch of there's there are a number of cocapellis everybody knows the cocapelli the humpback flute player you, you can't get away cocapelli has for whatever reason become a really popular image well at, on the sand island petroglyph panel there is a cocapelli but it's not a person it's a bighorn sheep standing on his rear hooves <laughs> playing the flute now that's now that's 
so one, one of the things I, I mentioned in the book is, oh, come on, now, if you're going to insist on everything being representational, do you actually believe that Native Americans saw a, a flute-playing sheep, a sheep capelli or whatever, or if you accept it, well, no, that's whimsical, that's entertaining, well, that's interesting, well, then how about guys with big googly eyes well, floating well, in the well, air? Well, one, Ken, I think we're covering up the the, the existence of Sheep Squatch, uh, <laughs> which I didn't make up. Go look it up. There's oh, that's a, true. People, man Sheep. Where Sheep Man? Yeah, there, there, there's those guys on, on TV that shoot guns at monsters that don't exist, and they, they went after the Sheep Squatch thing. Um, and, and two, you know what? In all seriousness, once you realize that, that aliens are basically mythic ancestors for white people where they're not previously right, – yes. All of a sudden, this shit makes a lot more sense. It all now, makes I, a lot more sense, right? One I wanted to talk about, and I have not been to this place, and I, and I really want to visit this place. Um, it's not terribly far from me, but I haven't had a chance to go out. Um, that kind of gets into what we've been talking about. Sure. Is uh, Cemetery Mound in, in Marietta, Ohio. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's really fascinating for its history. So understand that at the end of the Revolutionary War, uh, people in New England felt that maybe things were getting a little too crowded and the wide open spaces of the West and the West being Ohio um, were being, the lands were being offered to to. And that was a motive veterans. for the war. That was a motive for the war also uh, right. in many ways. The, the British Empire had, had alliances with various indigenous North American groups and like, no, you can't move west of the, of the Appalachians because – these are our allies. Don't right. screw with them. That right. was actually one. We always talk about the tea and the taxes, but that's because that's that makes us look good. Don't talk about. Yeah, it doesn't you, make it you, look very good. You can actually see there are maps from the late 1700s that actually show Connecticut and Massachusetts. Oh yeah, long, I love those narrow bands of land that go all the way out to Ohio, and that's the so town Marietta is settled by Rev War guys. Massachusetts and Connecticut and you know they they were looking for a, a place to have a cemetery in the middle of this of the town of the, the newly founded town was this large turns out to be an Adena burial mound and they actually dug into the mound to see what was inside and found a, a skeleton of a Native American apparently they left it in place and made a conscious decision that well this was sacred ground to the people who were here before Let's keep it that way, and we will bury our dead at the base of this mound. And so they established the town cemetery right in the shadow of a 2,000-year-old burial mound. <coughs> That's pretty cool, actually, walk, for the it time. It really is. When you walk through the, the, the cemetery itself, without being one of the things, one of the projects I give my, my kids in my um, uh, intro archaeology class is they, ha they do a cemetery, cemetery project. And they, in groups of 25, uh, groups of, of six, seven, or eight, each one of them collects information on 25 gravestones that date to before 1880, and they're all over the place here in, in, um, in Connecticut. And if, and for all the archaeologists out there who were by Dietz, James Dietz, and uh, Deathlifson, where they, they showed how seriation process of um, this double lenticular ontogeny of, of uh, relative dating by putting things in order um, that that works for the different designs death's heads I, one of my students and, favorite uh, exercises I think yeah. it has to do with there's lots of like creepy skeleton yeah. <laughs> yeah. hands and, pointing everywhere real, they're cool and uh, my, once they had buy the kind of creep factor of, oh I gotta go to a cemetery they actually enjoy it the thing is that when that as a result I've been to a lot of cemeteries and I'm very familiar with the styles and designs and the shapes 
when I go to that cemetery in Ohio, you, I could be in Massachusetts. That is, the, that is everything about those gravestones looks like colonial Massachusetts and Connecticut. Right. Interestingly, um, years back in, I don't know when it was, back in the early 90s, I was in Scotland and was at a cemetery in, uh, I think, the Orkney Islands. And sure enough, there were death's heads, cherubs, and urns and willow. Huh. Oh, yeah. And they're often very uh, elaborate. They're often more yes. elaborate than the New England ones. Yes. Huh. What's, what's the cool thing there is if you're an archaeologist and say there's you know, everybody's gone and all you're you're an extraterrestrial archaeologist and land on Earth, you would you would notice that you would see that these are very similar designs on what marks the graves of these the, the species and would would I probably would hypothesize some sort of a historical connection. Oh yeah. The point here is so so you you go through the cemetery and it's really it's it's like being in Massachusetts, and the the notion that people historically late 1700s early 1800s actually instead of plowing away that mound or looting that mound said let's leave it intact and maintain the sacred character of this this place i think that's amazing and it is right now it's in the middle of a residential neighborhood so when you go to see cemetery mound cemetery cemetery mound you park in front of somebody's house and you walk across the street and you're in the cemetery, which I think would be an incredibly cool thing, right? If every day when you woke up, you looked outside and there in the background is a 2000 year old burial mound surrounded by burials from the late 17 and early 1800s. Now there's no museum there. There's no fee. You know, you huh. Just, just go just in. Just walk up. You just walk in. Just walk in because I don't think it is actively being used now but it's recognized as a a, a cemetery and yeah. it's maintained by the town i guess well and that's, I, I, the neat go ahead go ahead the neat thing about that is is the town and we've talked about this on past episodes too since the town has made that part of their communal identity they have more investment in protecting that yes, site sure. and so they're as a community they are actively protecting the site also now that it's a, a historical cemetery it also has other protections right exactly uh, because of that status so like it's doubly protected now and once by the community itself who main who who is still responsible for maintaining it and then again by the historical cemetery that sprouted up around it so that's really ingenious yeah and it worked out really well there are some examples of that around here there there's uh one just south of where i am in oxford uh, in in Riley, where there's a there's a, a low small mound in the cemetery, and that kind of blew my mind because that's not something I'm used to coming right. from from north the northeast myself. I need to visit this one in Marietta. I for for my book, I actually went and read um, the speech that was given by uh, Reverend Doctor Cutler of Hamilton in 1798 on August 15th when they um, uh, ordained the place. And he uh, tries to link it to people in Mexico, sure. and he talks about human sacrifices and that were supposedly possibly carried out there, <laughs> and that they they renamed the mounds with like classical Latin names, well, like it's called uh, a conus. It's yes, actually, yes, C O N U S. Is that Greek? I'm not exactly. I sure, maybe Greek, yeah, but it's just classical yeah. name. I don't know if it's Greek or Latin. I think it's Greek, but yes, exactly. But, but yeah, so that's called the Conus. There actually were other mounds in Marietta, and I, I haven't seen this. Maybe, Jeb, you can check this out. But my understanding is either the town hall or the library was actually built on top of a low platform mound. 
I would so not be surprised. They talk about that around here. Like if you go to our library's right? website, they talk about sort of folklore of there being mounds where the university is. Okay. And I have – and that's one of these things that I've been poking around in the history of around here. And there's all these things that people keep going, wait, I've never heard that. And I'm like, yeah, here's the thing. Um, there, There is literally a, uh, a street in our town called Arrowhead Drive. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, yeah. and and right. I'm like, I know somebody lives on there. I'm like, yeah. How do you think you got that name? Yeah, right. I, I, I start looking at the exactly. map of where it is and knowing what else is in town, and I'm like, yeah, that's well, just and, just in case you're wondering where you live, well, in, that's where you live. See, Marietta is also historically important for in archaeological terms because I believe it's one of the first places where somebody actually attempted to date a mound. By cut, by cutting down a tree that was growing on top of it and counting. The oh, yeah. that sound that sounds right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's Marietta. And and the nice thing there was that this the, whoever did this and I can't remember who um, came up. The argument was well these mounds could not have been built by Indians yes. very recently because the trees growing on them and probably there were trees before indicate that these mounds in fact are ancient. Of course, at the time, that was used to, to argue that, well, then the Indians weren't here yet when these mounds were built, so it was right. from somebody else. But right. it was it was kind of the beginnings of uh, kind of dendro chronology, recognizing, well, if you have a 400-year-old tree growing on the top of a mound, the mound has to have been here more than, more 400, than 400 years ago. Right, which and is pretty cool. It's interesting to me, I mean, and this is just kind of a side, that, you know, technically the mound builder myth started with, you know, they must have been... The favorite one was they must have been the lost tribes of Israel that somehow wandered right. over here to America. And then, you know, through the work of Thomas Jefferson and, through, and uh, uh, what's his name of the Smithsonian, we figured out that, no, these were actually done by Native Americans. And that was normal for a good stretch of time. And then we start in with the fringe here most recently. And, and we're back to, no, the mounds were built by the lost tribes of Israel and or giants and or, you know, Murdoch, the... Celtic prince or whoever, right? Yeah. Anyone but the Native Americans, and and what I find funny about that is there's almost always some kind of caveat. They're like, well, Native Americans might have built some of the mounds, but not this mound. This mound was built by someone else. But right, yeah. But we but need to go uh, to. Oh, go ahead, real quick. I was going to say, so Jeb, being in Ohio, have you been to the Mound Builder Country Club in Newark? Oh, yeah. I have been to the Newark mounds outside of that. No, you need uh, to go to the country club. Let's, let's talk about that because that's complicated. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that after the break. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to break real quick and we'll come back and talk sure. about the golf, the golf club inside of a mound. <laughs> The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show.
everyone and welcome back and we are going to talk a little about uh mound builder country club that we yeah. brought up right before the break and jeb you've which got is some... another another one of the 50 sites the, the, the point everybody should go and see uh, mound cemetery go and see there obviously it's a cemetery so you know treat it with respect it's in a it's in a residential neighborhood again don't park don't block anybody's driveway but in, in historic preservation um, community, they talk about adaptive reuse. That is taking something that's old and instead of destroying it, fixing it up so that you maintain its historical character, but you use it as something else. Clearly using a, an Adina, the area around the Adina, Adina burial mound as a cemetery is an example of adaptive reuse that I think most people would, would be, are comfortable with. In the case of the Mound Builder Country Club, we have a kind of adaptive reuse that's maybe the, you know, not exactly not what not, not the best historic idea. preservationists have in mind, because in fact, there is a golf course yep. built over um, a mound site. Built, this uh, this the, is the about a half hour north of, of Columbus, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. In Newark. Right. Newark. And yeah. so essentially what you've got <coughs> is within it, it's a it's a, a, an, a, an two combined enclosures one a circle one an octagon there are individual mounds inside of that i think there are burials outside of the of the actual enclosure <coughs> but the the golf holes the tees the um the sand traps are all part of the it's it's like a giant mini golf course yeah only it's an indian sacred site yeah only um, it's a mound city <laughs> which is which is somewhat troubling now and a huge one a huge one yeah it's with, massive with yeah it's huge lunar huge. astronomical alignments very cool things found there it's a very right. impressive site well and the really um, neat thing about the mound builder country club mounds is that they are a small part of the even larger mound complex that's riddled sure. throughout the town and the area around it. Right. So like the mound, the overall mound site itself is massive. Well, it's like right. Stonehenge. It's a larger ceremonial landscape. Yeah. And, and it's, they're, they're, they're like what Brad calls sacred roads. They're actual, yeah. that are more than a mile long. Oh, they're, they're more than, yeah. One of them, I think he said was like five miles or something. Is that right? And so there are these, they're, they're walled pathways that were obviously yeah. part of ceremonies. This is gigantic, very, very impressive. Um, so impressive that, Jeb, we were talking about the World Heritage List um, and mentioned the fact that there were a number of sites in Ohio that at least the nomination process has been initiated. Um, you have a list of which, what those sites yeah, are? I, I found the answer. There's, a, there's an article, Ohio Earthworks, or Ohio Earthworks, this is, okay, this is, these two words should not be together. Ohio Earthworks work for placement on World Heritage List. <laughs> This is by Jennifer Smola of the Columbus Dispatch from April 12, 2016, and uh, it basically outlines this. And they so apparently the strategy is that they're going to put several together, like we were discussing. The, right. This is a quote: "The Hopewell Ceremonial Earthworks, which include the Newark Earthworks, Chillicothe's Mound City National Park, and Fort Ancient State Memorial near Lebanon, were placed on a U.S. Department of Interior tentative list in 2009 of national right. sites to submit for UNESCO. They are talking separately about Serpent Mound okay. and uh, a series of date aviation sites, but they're focusing." Uh, their top priority is the Hopewell work. So they're basically including all of this <laughs> right. as one great heritage site. 
And uh, the article discusses stakeholders have been discussing what will happen at the Ohio Hopewell sites should they secure the World Heritage designation, like where, quote, world-class museums could be built in Newark and Chillicothe to welcome visitors, Shields said. There have also been discussions about the Mound Builders Country Club and Golf Course, which currently owns and occupies the land where the Newark earthworks are located, mm-hmm. but no official desi- decisions have been made. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'll just for one brief moment play a little bit of devil's advocate here, which is to say that, well, a golf course is not the best adaptive reuse for a mound site. But of course, throughout the American Midwest, where there were mounds and farmers wanted flat fields, a lot of mounds ended getting ended up getting plowed out of existence. So no, there is, it, there is a truth there. Argue, yeah, there is yeah, a truth I mean, there. argue that the, the existence of the golf course, although it's inappropriate, <laughs> It has, in some sense, served to preserve those. Well, those, I mean, we um, saw that. We features. saw that with, with Cahokia. I mean, Cahokia has not been entirely plowed down, but there was a Cahokia-like site, or at least a somewhat Cahokia-like site, in the actual. So, Cahokia is in East St. Louis, in no, Illinois. No, 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 it's Co- Collinsville. They, they get very upset when you call. Right. It okay. Louis. Right. <laughs> but it's it's in it's in it's in Illinois. You go right. across the Mississippi into St. Louis proper, and. Uh, there was an area of St. Louis, which was called Mound City, which was demolished, if I remember correctly, in the yes. early 1900s, yep. which is now actually getting controversial because that's apparently where they're talking about putting their new sports stadium. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it could be worse. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of that, 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 that the, 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 the site that's there on the, the eastern margin of St. Louis, um, there's although the mounds themselves were destroyed – there is a lot of archaeological uh, material that's still there, buried under the ground, and then that yeah. turns up every once in a while. Well, out of Mount so it's City, not simply yeah. like, oh, it's gone, okay, we can build yeah. a stadium here. There would need to be a tremendous amount right. of survey work done. And that's being, people there. are talking about, uh, people are talking about that, that's, that's a major consideration. Well, what but people yeah, don't so understand is... the golf course is not so bad, or not so good, yeah. Well, yeah. here's a couple least, things. Here's a couple things, though. With, with the mounds out in Mound City, what people don't understand is the mound itself is kind of like the tip of the iceberg. Like, the, the physical right. viewable mound is, is like the tip of the iceberg. There's stuff there that's just telling you that, hey, there's a concentration right here. And the other thing with the golf course that I recall from when we went, um, I mean, yeah, it could be worse, but the golf course itself is still damaging the mounds. Um, They're they're not allowed. It was my understanding. They're not allowed to remodel the grounds like you would on a normal uh, on a normal golf course like you could okay. literally just knock shit over and build stuff wherever you wanted it to go so that you can increase the difficulty levels of knocking a small ball into a smaller hole but out at mound uh, the mound builder one they're not supposed to do that but as i recall there's been some controversy because there's been some evidence that that's what they've been doing so just- you know it's kind it, of a it's, catch it's, twenty two. Yeah. It's not great. And then again, and then I mean, for folks who go, who are saying, well, you know, it's a country club, it's a golf course. So yeah, what? yeah. Can you imagine if somebody decided to put a you know a golf course in the middle of the Gettysburg battlefield, right? Or out here a bull run, Bighorn, uh, where you know, I think that people would flip out. They know that's inappropriate, and I think that's maybe ultimately long term. It's inappropriate to put a golf course in the middle well, it, it, of, it rem- of a site. 
It reminds me, one of my students was doing an independent or, or doing a paper on uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and of course, there's been a lot of accusations that, you know, Williamsburg is the Disneyfication of. Right. But one of the things I pointed out to her was in the 1990s there was going to be an actual Disneyfication yes. in Northern Virginia. The Disney Corporation planned very seriously to put a right. U.S. history themed park in Northern Virginia. And there was some local opposition, to say the least, because they're worried about traffic. I mean, that's a that's not a poor part of the United States. There were a lot no. of people with like land <laughs> right. who, who opposed it from a not in my backyard yeah. perspective. But then there was also the way you're going to have amusement park rides about the Underground Railroad, which they were. Oh, wow. you're going to have like video game style rides and whatnot about like fighting the Nazis, which they were, and they're well, like, you know, to be fair, we already have that. So, well, yes, but, and, and, but literally next to bull run. Uh, right. Manassas, yeah. Basically. And then the, the one that always catches me was, you know how they have the electric light parade in, in Disney yeah. every night or the fireworks, their equivalent was going to be reenacting the battle of the monitor versus the Virginia, the first two ironclads <laughs> and people lost their minds. Okay, but to okay, so here's where I'm maybe a horrible person. With everything, with the exception of the Underground Railroad thing, which is horrifying, some of that actually sounds cool. I mean, we already have video games where people blow up Nazis, so that's well, sure. I'm over that, but I think it would be kind of cool to watch him blow the crap out of two battleships on nightly well, basis. Well, that's the thing. I think it, 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 this is something you see with a lot of heritage, and and I think this is one of the things that gets to to what Ken's been arguing with this book. There's two components. One, where's the line? So, for exactly. example, uh, Tintagel Castle in uh, in Cornwall in, in in England is allegedly like where uh, Merlin, the you know the mythical wizard, allows Uther Pendragon to uh, to sleep with Egraine that he so desires, and Arthur is born of this magic. Well, recently there was a carving made in the cliff face under the castle of Merlin, and this was done with the permission of the, the caretakers, and people lost their minds. It wasn't a very large sculpture. I, when I saw the picture, I'm like, oh my god, that's horrible. And then I saw one in scale. It's like, it's a foot and a half tall. It's not that <laughs> sort of a big deal. Um, so first of all, there's that. But then it gets to, I think what Ken's been arguing is it, is it, it's, it's a whole, is it, is it our heritage? Does it mean anything to us? And, and I think this is something that keeps coming up again and again on, on this show where so many people have a model of heritage mattering, but if it, if it doesn't, if, if people don't know about it and it doesn't matter to them, it then becomes like, well, let's just put in our, let's just put an amusement park here. Let's just, let's, and, and we, I, we can say that literally, or we can say it metaphorically with, well, let's put Nephilim here. Let's well, put aliens here. And I see and what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Like, where do we draw the line? But at the same time as looking at it as someone who's trying to encourage engagement and encourage that whole not my history, you know, get rid of that not my history thing. Because as someone who is born and raised in the North, even though I have Southern family, you know, we come out here to Virginia and it's all about the Civil War. And I could care less because we don't live and breathe the Civil War where I'm from. But here they do. So that's like that's not my history either because I have no emotional connection to it. I mean, I know conceptually that that's part of the United States history. Therefore, it is my history. But I have no emotional connection to it. But if we were to put together something like a amusement park that was highly like 
tastefully regulated, maybe. But I mean, I would totally go watch reenactments of things, especially if well, they're historically accurate. That gets into whole other problems of the fact that uh, that there's as so you may be wondering why I have the name Jeb. My father was one of the early Civil War reenactors in the 1970s. I have a history here that probably just makes it better that I say that that gets really complicated. Well, yeah. And that's the thing. Like each one of us has our own personal connection to it. But as, but once we step away from our, our personal, I mean, cause there's stuff from Northern history and things like that, like the, the whole underground railroad thing. I mean, that is a big no for me. That's like that, that's a deal breaker because I'm from the North. We're from, I'm from Indiana. That's like our thing. We're the underground railroad in Indiana, even though most of the sites don't have anything to do with it. But, you know, you get out here and they don't have that connection or their connection isn't as strong. And so an underground railroad ride for them might be something really cool that they would really like to do. And there's no there's no emotional connection for them. Here's the thing. Think, consider this. It's one of the... the the themes of my I'm not book. necessarily saying it's good or bad. I'm just playing devil's no, no, advocate. But, but I think that there's the underlying theme of my book, and maybe it's naive, is that if you take people out of their comfort zone, oh, I'm from the South, this is what I'm interested in. Right. But you actually walk them through Horseshoe Canyon, and they're confronted by these 24 more than life size, very interesting, spooky looking images that they can't, I don't care where they're from or what their heritage is or what their background is, you can't help but be moved by that. That if somebody looks at, climbs that tower and looks down at Serpent Mound and sees this 1,300 foot long snake, again, I don't care what your heritage is, I don't care where, what your background is, what you were previously interested in, you can't help but look at that and say, wow, that's really interesting. So it's that, that personal engagement that, that we need at real sites to break down those kinds of barriers, those kinds of, of uh of, of issues where people say, well, that's not my thing. I, that's not my history. That's not my, what I'm interested in. Again, maybe I'm naive and it's not going to work for everybody, but the sites that I've seen in my 50 site Odyssey and the ones I want people to go to, I, I chose them expressly because they were places that I think anybody, anybody in their presence will say, wow, that's, that's really interesting. That's really strange. That's really amazing. And then that from that, you inspire them to rethink what they think their heritage is. No, we want to we want to be part of that because that's really interesting. Um, I go back and forth. I mean, I, I I absolutely agree with you, Ken, and I also absolutely agree with criticism. I mean, I I find myself if this was easy, we wouldn't be talking about it. Right. right. Of course. Yeah. I wanted to ask you guys, um, so have you guys been to, so Ken, you've been to all of these. Um, yeah. Uh, the one that blew my mind is you've you've got on their uh, Grand Village of the Natchez. This is in Natchez, Mississippi. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which uh, is important, not just as an archaeological site, but that's also where um, there was one, probably the best ethno-historic documentation of kind of Mississippian chiefly yeah. society in its in its full bloom with the great you sun and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I went to when I was there, and you said in that in that chapter or in that section, you also discuss Emerald Mound, which is nearby. Yeah. And and I work in Mesoamerica, you know, ancient mm-hmm. Maya and all these sorts of things. I remember going to Emerald and me like, Jesus Christ, this is huge. <laughs> nope, this is yeah. absolutely friggin' huge. And I remember talking to some. I, I'm not going to name who it was. 
but an archaeologist that works there, very cool archaeologist, good archaeologist, and they're talking about mound groups and groups, and I'm like, you know, just take this from my perspective as a Mesoamericanist. If you called these pyramids <laughs> an, acro- an acropoli, because this is a friggin' acropolis covered with pyramids, you understand there would be a slightly different reaction. Yeah. Um, have you run? So you, you, yeah, you, you mentioned you've mentioned the Cahokia and and the and and the St. Louis uh, thing, and people didn't know about it. Have you run into some other sort of situations where there's been very different kinds of, not necessarily even fringy, although we can talk about that, but like different takes on how this stuff gets you know thought of and consumed. Like any any kind of come to mind. Yeah, the the thing that that frustrates the shit out of me is when is a reaction I get from a lot of students, especially with the mound builders. Which is basically well, but there, it's it's just a big pile of dirt. Mm-hmm. I say, well, have you ever tried with your bare hands, not with not with a backhoe, not with any machinery, to move a substantial amount of earth and to and not just to pile it up randomly, but to actually shape it to earth form. Um, and, and but that's I, I, there seems to be this bias that if it's stones that you're piling up and making pyramids that's impressive if it's earth it's just a pile of dirt and part of the problem there is of course is that these mounds have all eroded substantially right and so as a result they don't have the sharp corners they may have had they don't <clears throat> they're not geometrically perfect as they probably were while they were being maintained right um and so there's, and there's also the that. golf course effect there's also the golf course effect that right. a very nicely maintained archaeological site and this is true in mesoamerica as well is a bunch of green lawns and that gets right. really um, – one of my students, she's working on an augmented reality project where you would see the artifacts where they were found. Oh, cool. Oh, and that would be neat. We, we kind of talked about this and I'm like, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I occasionally go to some archaeological sites and I'm like, okay, it's a green yeah. lawn. But if you show me what is being found there – and I often know what it is as a, as a professional – that can also have that impact of kids are like, well, it's a green, it's a green hill. Right. You know, I think that plays into it also. Yeah, well, there, is, is... there is that problem, except with effigy mounds, because Serpent Mound, you right. can't help but climb up that tower and go, oh, my God, it's a, it's a big snake. The friggin' that snake. Actually, yeah. That is a problem at, in Iowa is the um, Effigy Mound National Monument. And there are beautiful mounds, and there are bears and thunderbirds. The problem is they're all in wooded areas, uh, and, there, yeah. are, and yeah. there are no towers. So when you think... Essentially, especially you grow up in an area, you grow up in New England where there's all this glacial landscape where there's lots of hummocks and hills. You could easily walk those trails and not even recognize that there was anything other than an area that's been cleared because right. it's a hill. Um, that's a problem. Obviously, that's a problem that would be ameliorated substantially if you had a big tower. Well, they have, the, a, went, they have a similar problem. Go ahead. No, just to say that when I went to Poverty Point, they at one point I guess they had a tower where you really could see these ridges. It's an extremely impressive site, but that vandalism and Uh, wasn't being kept up. So they took the tower down, and now, for the most part, when you walk through Poverty Point, you can see that there there are hills, but you don't get the geometric patterning nearly as well. So there's there's Mound A, but the crescents yes. aren't very visible. Yeah, I, I, I did not go to Poverty Point. It's one of my great regrets when I lived in Louisiana. Yeah. See, if, you go on, if you go on Google Earth and you look at an aerial shot, it's incredibly impressive. But on the ground, you just you don't see it. 
And that's that's problematic for for getting the average person excited about. Oh my God, this is a World Heritage site. They walk around and go, well, it, it's not nearly as visually impressive as something like Cliff Palace at Mesa Verde. Well, and they have so some, it's our job to convince them it's it, why it's important. They have similar problems with a lot of the smaller mound sites too, because like um, Angel Mounds out at um, not Angel Mounds. Um, there's a mound complex out in Anderson in Indiana. And Kincaid? It's, hmm? Is it Kincaid? It might be Kincaid. It doesn't sound right. There's, there's a, it's a very small one. I'm like, we didn't even realize that we were at mounds until we were started walking around. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I might be crazy, but these look like mounds, like right. structures <laughs> to me, like ceremonial rings and such. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm just being an archaeologist and I'm just seeing shit where there isn't stuff. And it wasn't until we got out past most of the mounds and we found uh, one of the DNR people there and they were like, oh no, these are mounds. And they start telling us all kinds of stuff about it. I'm like, <laughs> why, why are they just here? There's nothing to tell anybody right. about them. And it, it, I, it, hmm? I just to say, it may be that our model is Egyptian pyramids. So the pyramids yeah. of yeah. America, well, okay, though we get that. That's kind of like Egyptian pyramids. But when you're looking at earthworks, we don't have a model for those. They don't match the Egyptian um, archetype. And so people don't respond as positively because it doesn't match what their model is for what a monumental work should look like. And I think we have the Victorians to blame for that. So, well, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> they have a lot to answer for. Yeah, they do. Damn Victorians. Well, guys, this has been fun. Absolutely. And Ken, I and feel like we've barely touched your book, so I'm sure we'll be back at it. That's absolutely for sure. And now, you know, capitalism, I will send you <laughs> a PDF that you can put on the website, which is you get like a big discount for the book. Cool. Um, if, you, if you go on, oh, I shouldn't say this, but if you go on Amazon, it's like 45 bucks. It's hardcover. It's really nice. But with the discount through the publisher, it's like $32. That's plus not bad. So that's so it's a it's pretty decent. Yeah. So, so anybody listening, if you you can get that discount if you go through that. Ooh, that, um, ooh it's a listener's discount. Ooh, we have one finally. A, a listener's discount, absolutely. I'm excited absolutely. about this. So, by you know what the hell, buy ten copies. It's it's, it's more than worth it. Christmas, you know, Christmas is coming up, and we just had Christmas. <laughs> but it's coming up again pretty soon, like in less than a year. So you know, buy. Buy your copies now. So, so what I'm hearing you say, Ken, is that they should try to replicate the mounds using your book as raw material. That would be a wonderful oh, idea. Oh, that would imagine, be cool. Can you imagine? An, how about an effigy that looks like me? <laughs> it's it's a, you know, made of my books. I mean, it's not a Made of idea. your books. Yeah, I think that level I... of ego needs to be reserved for centralized state societies. I, well, I like it, actually. When I'm king. When I'm, when ruler, I'm king. That's the kind of shit that will have going on. But listen, go. and ultimately, but in all seriousness, if 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 my book in any way, my goal, when, when I was talking about the, the book to the publisher, I said, listen, my goal here is for somebody to open this book and go, I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't know this oh, yeah. was here. And, and if that then encourages them, I doubt very much anybody's going to go to all 50 of the sites. But if it... And they're spread out enough so that wherever, just about wherever you are, there probably are a handful of sites that are day trips or not, you know, car, you don't have to go on a plane, just you take a car trip and see some of these things for yourself. It makes a world of difference. My pictures, most of the photographs of the book are mine, but the, uh, but in all honesty, when you're 
when you are standing at the base of, of Montezuma Castle looking up, there's nothing like that. When you are looking, when you're on the top of that that fire tower and looking down at Serpent Mound, the photographs don't do these things justice ever. Oh. And and if you want to view these as sacred places, that's great from an archaeologist archaeologist perspective. They are in a sense sacred, and they, t- they tell us the stories of people who are not here today to tell us those stories. Well, I mean, like, look, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in archaeology. Archaeology, we've said time and again, symbolically is about discovery. And if you can go use this book to discover these things in person, that's pretty much as good as it's going to get. And all the better if when you go to, say, Sago Canyon and you look at those that rock art and look at it in the context of the landscape and all the other rock art, you will go away from that saying, are they – they're nuts if they think those are spacemen. Yeah. All the better. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. This has been awesome. Thank you for yes. this unpaid advertising. I, am, I, am, I, I have not read this yet, and I am looking forward to doing so. I have not read it yet either, but I give it three thumbs up. <laughs> well, you only have two thumbs, Sarah. That's what you think. All right, guys. I would say don't know how many thumbs her neighbors have. You don't, Ken. That's true. Right, I that's could be holding the whole the whole building hostage. All right, guys, talk to you later, and well, thank you, and talk to you later. All right, bye bye. your trials as one will call. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archie Fantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Fantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.